Dear Lord, we, uh, we do want to follow you, and we, God, we want, to, um, we want to please you with our lives. And so, Lord, you have given us clear direction through your word. Help us, Father, in this last message about your Bible. God, help us to take it to heart, to uh, treat it with respect, and to obey it. And, Father, I just pray that as I uh, open up your word this morning, you'd make my words clear. But also, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us and help us to be better people, people that really are living by faith. We love you, God, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Chris Weeks. I am one of the pastors here at Kent City Baptist. I have been in exile for the last two weeks in the Middle East, my wife and I and Bill and Linda Rexford. And uh, we were in the Holy Land, and then we got to go to Portugal to visit some missionaries and it was amazing. Actually, if you want to hear more about it, the first Sunday of December, I'll be speaking about it with slides, and we have some stories to share. I'll share one story later in my sermon, but I just want to, first of all, thank Bill and Linda Rexford. They are tremendous hosts. They took great care of us, and they're, they are generous, generous people. I thank, thank God for them. I thank all of the families that helped my kids survive while we were gone. It's a tremendous task, but they're still alive, so thank you. And I want to thank the pastors. I want to thank Ken and Jared and Derek. They're gifted men, and they're a gift to our church. And I thank God for them, that they, they help us also know God intimately through his word. And so it's really, it's, it's great to be back. If you can, take your Bibles. We are, we're going to uh, do our final message on this book. Our final study, topical study, on this book. I will tell you, the trip to Israel, it really reinforced to me how important God's Word is. Not only is it historically accurate, I mean, it's, it tells a real history about a real man who really lived, and it's changed the world. But I'll tell you what, what this book does is it gives you a real faith. It keeps you grounded. This world is in a, a dark world. This world is a religiously ignorant world as well superstitious, prone to icons and cathedrals and kissing stones, where what this book does, it keeps us grounded in how I really connect with the living God. It's dangerous, too. This book is extremely dangerous. It's a blessing. It's a gift. But also, it's, if ignored or mocked, or I just go completely against it. It's a completely dangerous book as well. And that's why today the title of this message is Danger, Hazardous Material. Because this can be extremely hazardous material if you handle it incorrectly. We've covered a lot of ground from inspiration to authority and answering clarity. Today the topic is gravity, which means weightiness, taking it serious. Because not only does this book have enormous potential to bless, but in proportion to its wonder, it also wields a serious terror if we don't take it seriously. So if you can, open up to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, 17, and 18. This is going to be our passage. And uh, let's, let me just pray before we speak about it. Father, I just ask you to make it alive, make it real, Amen. Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 3. This book is written by Peter, the fisherman, the apostle of Christ. Part of the reason he's writing this book is because there are false prophets and teachers who are leading people astray. He's warning them. And so in the very end of the second Peter, he gives this final warning, and he begins, I'm going to start in the middle of verse 16. It says, there are some things in them, and that's referring to Paul the Apostle's writings and letters. He's saying the New Testament writings of Paul, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. There are. There's some very difficult things. Jared talked about that last week. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care 
that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. A.M. I, I love how the ESV writes that. Now and to the day of eternity. May He get glory. And one of the ways He receives glory is the way we handle this book. You see, false teachers and prophets, they were worming their way into the lives of people. And one of the main ways they do this, Peter says, is through the misuse of Scripture. They were misusing God's Word to gain an advantage, to gain a following, and to corrupt people. And so Peter's issuing a warning. He's saying, don't follow them Stay strong in what you know. That's his whole point. And her, his reason for saying that is because this is a very important and dangerous book at the same time. And I think we need to heed this warning as well. God's Word, believe it or not, is just as potent as it was 2,000 years ago. It's just as important. I feel, I feel some people believe that since we've had 2,000 years of it, it's not as important anymore. Let's look for some new information. But this is God's tool to transfer to us His grace. It's how He communicates to us. It's His chosen vehicle. And as we obey it, we are blessed. And as we disobey it, we are cursed. I want to uh, take this verse and detail it. And I'm going to use a diagram. So if you notice in verse 16, the subject that Paul, uh, Peter's going to talk about are the Scriptures. He talks about Paul's writings in verse 16. He talks about Paul's writings and letters. And, and he's also going to talk about other Scriptures. If you look at the end of verse 16, he says, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. So he's saying you have Paul's letters, which are hard to understand, and you have the other Scriptures, and combined, they twist both of those. Peter is saying both of these are being misused. Not just the hard ones, but all of them. We have this idea that false prophets only use the confusing Scripture to get a hold of a heart. They'll also twist the other obvious ones as well. If you want to know how to deal with hard passages, I encourage you to listen to what Jared spoke about last week. He did a great job. But I want you to notice and hear the problem with twisting Scripture isn't the degree of difficulty in understanding the Scripture. Like a lot of people say, oh, it's hard to interpret Scripture, and it's easy to twist the tough stuff. This isn't the issue. The problem is found in the person's heart who's doing the interpreting. I have found when a person's heart is really being honest before God, and they come across a difficult passage, they won't just go off on some crazy tangent. Often, they will usually seek help of somebody wiser saying, am I understanding this correctly? So to me, it's a person's heart, not the passage itself. And the case in point is he says, other scriptures, meaning, you know what? Even if it's clear and it's understandable, if a person has ulterior motives for his own advantage, he can even twist the easy verses. So it's not about the degree of difficulty. The problem of interpretation lies in the person's heart using the Scripture. That's where the problem is. So according to Peter, what type of person misuses the Scriptures? Are you one of these kind of people? Because he's going to describe the type of person that takes God's Word and we're going to show in a second, twists it, wrenches it out of what it's supposed to be doing. In this passage, Peter describes the people with two adjectives. You can find them in verse 16. He writes, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable. The ignorant and unstable. So on our diagram, I'm going to introduce you to Mr. Ignoramus. This man is ignorant and he's unstable. He is the type of person that's not trying to learn He's not trying to increase the knowledge. He's not trying to really know God. Nor is he trying to stand on something solid to order his life by. 
Ignorant literally means a person who does not value knowledge. A person who does not value learning or growing an understanding of God and His ways. An ignorant person could care less. They really could care less. It's the opposite of being disciple. A disciple is a person who follows a teacher because he's hungry to understand the world the way the teacher does. He wants to learn. The ignorant man already thinks he's arrived. I don't need to know anything. I already know it. You don't need to tell me anything. Have you ever, you ever been with somebody that never really listens and all they do is teach you? That's the ignorant person. Secondly, he uses this adjective unstable. Means a person is not looking to develop sure convictions to build a life upon. So you can put these two words together. Ignorant unstable is a person who's fluid. And he uses the word as it's convenient for him. He uses it to serve his own interests, basically. That's the point. It's always open to interpretation. Truth is always changing. And that's how people handle truth today. Just look at politics. The Constitution doesn't really mean anything. It means what I want it to mean. Ignorant and unstable. Fluid. People don't want to stand on something, so they will have to be accountable to it. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And today, what's cool is to think you're sophisticated and culturally nuanced, so I'm going to remain independent on any side. I'm not going to make a conviction, because I like to stay aloof out of the issues. So people are unwilling to fall on any biblical uh, conviction, because, you know, a person who has convictions is usually closed-minded and wooden, you know, so I'm not going to, I'm just going to remain open. But this kind of freewheeling attitude often proves that you really haven't thought deeply about anything at all. Let me, let me prove my point. I once was on a jury. It was a 10-day jury. It was a pretty intense case. And they had a guy that was clearly guilty, and they had a party that was, he was actually suing them for $2 million. He was a prosecuting, and they were the defense, and this guy was a liar. We listen to testimony for 10 days. After you listen to testimony for 10 days, you go into a room to deliberate. Now, what if I, as a juror, said, well, you guys can make decisions, but I'm going to stand aloof. I'm not coming to a verdict because I'm above all of you. I like to remain open on both sides. And then so we go out there, and how do you stand? Well, uh, judge, there's one guy, he, he, he's not making any decision because he doesn't think he has to. He's not coming to a verdict. You would say that I am in breach of my duty. I have been here to make decisions. In the same way, there has to come a point when you make a verdict on this book. There has to. There has to come a point when you make a verdict on the atonement of Christ, on the perfection of Christ, on the deity of Christ on salvation by faith, there has to come a point where you make a decision. To remain aloof is ignorance, actually, because you've been given all kind of information to make a decision. If you're unwilling to make a decision, especially if you've had two, five, ten years to think about these scriptures, probably means you're ignorant, not wanting to do the hard work, and unstable, remaining open to everything so you can follow any fad of your choosing. That's really why people don't take this book in. Well, Peter says these type of people are the ones who have no qualms then with doing the next thing. It says they twist it. So these people, Mr. Ignoramus takes the scripture and like a torture rack, he twists it. And the ESV says to twist. The NIV says to distort. The Greek word is streblu, which means to wrench something out of proportion, to dislocate it. One commentator said it's kind of like taking an old torture instrument where, you know, like they'd put you on a rack and they'd pull your arm and they keep twisting it. Oh, it's out of joint. Oh, it's what, that's what the ignorant and unstable are doing with the word. They did twist it to where it doesn't mean what it meant to mean.
So the ignorant and unstable take God's word and make it say and teach what they want it to say and teach. They will twist it like silly putty and make it into any mold of their choosing. And God says here in Peter, if you look at the end of verse 16, they twist it to their own destruction. God says the result of twisting Scripture is destruction of self. Thinking they are using the word for their own personal advancement actually works against them and contributes to their degradation. So it's dangerous. That's why it's a dangerous, that's why it's hazardous material. It's very, very scary. So as we look at this, so you can say, yeah, Mr. Agramus takes the scriptures and when he twists it, it will result in, go ahead and click it, his own destruction. So... Hopefully that's pretty clear, but as you look at this diagram, there's two questions that have to be asked a little bit further. Bring it more practical. First question is how do people twist the scripture? Do they take it like a phone book, like a big strong man, and just <clears throat> rip it in half? Is that what, that what that means? Every time I read a Bible, I just <clears throat> rip it. Is that what twists me? How do people twist this book? And then the second question is what kind of destruction happens? Do they, if they all of a sudden teach it wrong, do they, do they just get lightning bolt hit them? What kind of destruction? Some people say, I'll never enter a church. Lightning would just strike me dead. Is that the kind of destruction that God renders on people? Instantaneous wrath? No, it's a little more complicated than that. So the first question, how do people twist the scripture? I think there's four methods people use in twisting scripture. Two that are very obvious, and two you don't think about, but really are the most prevalent. So the first one I'm going to talk about is the one that I think he's specifically referring to when it comes to false teachers. And it's called, fancy word, Jerry, get ready for this fancy word, but you can handle it. Eisegesis. Eisegesis. The first way people twist the scripture is through what I'm going to call a willful lack of contextual understanding. Instead of coming to learn what the author's original intent was, they come to God's word with their minds already made up. Instead of coming to this book by saying, what does it tell me to do? I know what I want it to tell me to do, so I find a passage that fits my thoughts. That's eisegesis. Last week, Jared explained to you how you take the Bible and you go to the original context, you go to the original village, you cross the river and bring it to your village. Very made it very, very simple. That is called, and if you go to seminary, that is called proper historical, literal, grammatical interpretation, or exegesis. Exegesis. Exegesis means to get meaning out of the text. Ex means out of the text. Eisegesis means putting meaning into the text. I put my own mind into this. I've already made it up. I'm the master of the text. I don't really need to tell the Bible what to say because I already know what it says, so I find what I want it to say. Let me give you two illustrations. Go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. I want you to use your, your deep reasoning for this. It's going to be a very difficult passage. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. What do you think that's talking about? Anybody have any idea? What's that talking about? Go ahead, Tom. What's that talking about? He's saying the fear of the Lord and wisdom. Who would you say is the father and mother? And who would be the actual father in this book? Okay, so here's what he's saying. So he's, he's, he has just used what's called the historical, grammatical, literal approach. So he's saying, when it says, hear my son, your father's instructions, go right up to verse 1 of chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand and words of insight. So he said exactly what verse 1 said. This is probably King Solomon giving advice to his sons. He's a teacher. And he's giving insight and wisdom he had from God to other people. Seems pretty clear to me, but you're wrong. Notice, 
verse 8 again. Hear, my son, Jehovah's instruction, and forsake not the watchtower's teaching. That's really what it means. Did you know that? The Watchtower Society, the Jehovah Witnesses one day came over and told me that. That's what that means. That's what they told me. I said, it looked pretty close. Like, this is talking about Solomon. Oh, no, 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 no. The mother, in this case, is the Watchtower Society. And they will watch over you. And if you learn the Scriptures from them, you will be safe. That's what they said that means. Is that what that means? No, they were putting their own meaning into it. That's called eisegesis. Let me show you another one. Very easy. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Now this is by, and people, they, they, they accuse me of bashing this guy, but you'll see why I, I don't necessarily agree with Rob Bell's teaching. If you notice in Revelation 21, verse 22, Revelations 20 is talking about the end, it's specifically heaven, and what the new Jerusalem is going to be like, our new heaven and new earth. And verse 22 says of Revelations 21, And I saw no temple in a city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So verse 25 says, in heaven, the nations will walk into God's city, and the gates will never be shut. That means they always have access. Now, Rob Bell will take this a step further, and he said, you see how the gates are shut? That means God will never shut the gates on any religion or anybody. Everybody's in. See, God is open to everybody. That's what the book Love Wins means. He wins everybody. And this is proof because the gates are never shut. All he had to do is read one more verse. Keep reading. So they will, it says, and there will be no more night. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So who are the only ones that are going to walk through those doors? The people whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Who are those people? Those are the only people that have accepted Christ as their Savior. Wow. See, so eisegesis is I go into the Scriptures looking for what I'm looking for. Exegesis is saying, oh, in full context, heaven's gates will be open to those who are His and only His but they'll have complete access forever. Yes, exactly. Eisegesis usually happens with people who think they are really smart and can't learn anything from other people. And often these are the very same type of people who want to lead other people astray. They want to get a following for themselves. They often are prone to argue, like to question authority and criticize and they see the Bible more as an argumentative tool than a way to know and live with God. Cults use this method. Second method of twisting Scripture is very subtle, very obvious, and it's called mockery, mockers. These are the group of people that just don't believe that God can supernaturally speak anymore. They're, they're mockers. Internally, they chuckle at the notion that God really can talk to me through this. Okay. You've got to be kidding me. Come on. Really? There was a writer in the late 1900s uh, or 1800s. His name was H.L. Mencken. He was a famous atheist. And actually, he was, he was a guy that loved to mock Christians. And he wrote this. Religion was invented by man, just as agriculture and a wheel were invented by men, and there is absolutely nothing in it to justify the belief that its inventors had the aid of higher powers, whether on this earth or elsewhere. So what he's saying is this is an instrument of men, just like the wheel was invented by men. So is this. At least he's bold enough to admit it. But I'm convinced there are a large number of people, even in our own church, that really don't think this book has the power to change lives. They really don't believe that. 
They'll say, yeah, that's nice poetry, interesting historical references, but actual, these are actual words from God. No. You know what scholars describe this attitude as? They call it practical atheism. Practical atheism. We claim we are Christians, but we act like we are the run-of-the-mill atheists, not believing God can actually enter and interrupt my daily life. Often a person like this sees the Bible as a self-help tool but not the power of God encased in words. Just simply ask this, when's the last time you really picked this up and read it looking for insight? And a lot of people would say, Pastor, I never do. My hint, maybe you really don't believe it. You kind of are a practical atheist. You wouldn't say you mock the Bible, but you'd say, I find no use in it. I'm not a reader. I don't like to read it. Well, if, if, I gave you a, a, uh, if I gave you a magic wand and you, you could just go like that and things would appear, I guarantee you'd use that. Well, I've never used a wand before, but all you got to do is pick it up and you, you'd use that. But a lot of people say, I'm not a good reader. I, I just don't like to read. Maybe you don't really believe this can do anything to you. The third thing, now we're going to get to areas where I'd say are less obvious, but just as twisting of Scripture as the other two. Because I would say most people aren't hardcore skeptics or practical atheists, but their error, their error with Scripture falls into the practice of it, how they live it. The third group are hypocrites. They live in hypocrisy, putting on a mask. They say they believe in one thing, but they live completely the other way. People put on a mask at church. They've learned to talk to talk, but they don't live it. They just don't. Deep in the hypocrite's heart is this belief that God really doesn't see what I'm doing because I can fool him. <laughs> I can fool him. I can go to church, but he, he doesn't really see. It's as if God is only has vision. Like he's, he's kind of, it's kind of like, you know how Superman can't see through iron. It's almost like God can only see in here. Then when I go out there, it's iron. The world's made of iron. He only can see me and I'm in, in here. We sit on a couch in our home, imagining God to be this old man with bad eyesight, believing the, it's the worship music and hymns that wake him up. That's what wakes him up. He's normally sleeping on a rocker, but when, when the hymns play, then God wakes up and he can see me. But then when I go home, he, he can barely see that I do, and he pats me on the head and he goes, you guys are nice little girls and boys go on your way as if that's really what hypocrisy tells my heart. He can't see what I do during the day. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm just telling you. When you read this book and it says things like do everything without arguing and complaining, and then that's what we do majority of our life, we just say that doesn't really apply and God doesn't see that. Or you know, a man, watch your eyes. Don't put vile things before it. But then we read that. We live on vileness. Ah, oh, well, God doesn't notice that. That's hypocrisy. That's twisting the scriptures because I really don't use them. Then the fourth one I would say, before you put it up there, Declan, this fourth one, I got to tell you, Israel awakened me more to this because I lived on this most of my life. And this is rarely talked about in church. It's the issue of what I'm going to call sentimentalism. Sentimental, sentimentalism is a huge problem. Like it's a ma major problem, but we don't, we don't really realize it. In Israel, I saw it all over the place when people would kiss stones, cry when they saw the light go through a beautiful stained glass window, put incense up to a Greek Orthodox icon and have statues on the front of your car as you go and drive into your house. It's sentimentalism. What is sentimentalism? The best, the best way to state it is the Christian who's on the hunt for feeling. That's really what it is. I'm on the hunt for an experience. The, the best definition of it I heard on the movie uh, Miracle on 34th Street, 1994 version. This lawyer was arguing for the existence of Santa Claus. 
And to make his point, he's arguing before the judge. And he tells the judge, he says, what is more important, a lie that draws a smile or a truth that draws a tear? And obviously what he wanted to judge the vote for was the lie that draws a smile because you don't want to tell your little kids Santa Claus doesn't exist because it will crush their little heart. So what he's saying is there, is there is this lie that draws a smile and it's versing against a truth that could cause a tear. And sentimentalism lets the lie win over the truth because it would rather smile than cry. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Luke 11, 27 and 28. This is... I read this after I was in the city of Nazareth. Literally, I read this in my hotel room after I was in the city of Nazareth. In the city of Nazareth, they've got tons of churches because that's where, I mean, massive churches. They have one over the Holy Family's house where they believe Mary and Joseph and Jesus lived. They have this massive church over it, and it's gorgeous. I mean, it is. And then we went to the city of Jerusalem, and we went down three places where this church was dedicated to Mary's sorrow while she watched her son die on the cross and they had at the very bottom this coffin that was carved in a wooden frame and it was painted to look like Mary and this lady before she was on our trip and we were on this trip and we were going from place to place really quick so you didn't have a lot of time to stop and every once in a while you see church groups crying and having worship service this lady at dinner one time said I just want a moment I want my moment I'm not getting it well, when we went down to that basement where that coffin looked like Mary, she kneeled and she cried and she had her moment. She had her moment. And then I read this, Luke eleven twenty-seven to 28. I read this that afternoon. Jesus was, you know, he was teaching. And verse 27 says, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Okay, stop right there. So Jesus is talking. A lady sees Jesus. And she basically says, Oh, your mother had to be an incredible woman to have a boy like you. Blessed is she. She's a great lady. And, and you've, you've heard, you know ladies like this in church. They, they are overwhelmed with emotion, which is great. And they want to encourage you. And they... My grandmother, when we'd go to church, we'd sometimes come out of church, she'd see a dove on the eve of the church roof, and she'd say, that's a, isn't it so, oh, like that. You know, and this lady's just want to be an encouragement. She's just saying, Jesus, your mom must be amazing. And look how Jesus responds. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus, you just threw cold water on this lady's emotion. How dare you? She had her moment. You're stealing it, Jesus. Why couldn't you say, oh, yes? Oh, yes. You know, that's kind of the religious response to things. You see, for, for Jesus, it's about truth. But for most people, it's about feeling. I'm not against feeling. I really am not. I like, my, my, my wife wouldn't believe it, but I like to cry. I like when you have a song and it makes you cry. I love it. I love it. I really do. My wife doesn't believe it, but I love it. I'll tell you what, I also cry at the end of Lord of the Rings when they're bowing down to the hobbits. I love that part. And I, sometimes I cry. I don't mean to, but I do. Like, wow, what a, what a show. Is that a holy moment? What Jesus is saying, it's okay to have those times. But he said, you really want to be blessed? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now that is something we can stand on. And not always searching for the moment. The moments will come, but sometimes they're lies. A lot of times they're lies. And I know it because my aunts and uncles lived in it for 60 years. And it makes me furious because they would never listen to the word of God. But boy, Mary could shake the, the sun. So we have the four ways people twist the scriptures. Which way do you twist it? So then it goes, Jesus said, 
this twisting adds to destruction. So what does that mean? Well, what he means is destruction, as I'm going to call soul rot. The Greek word for destruction is apalia, which means a loss of being or wholeness. In other words, if you handle the scriptures right, it gives you wholeness to your life, to your body. But in a proportional way, if you ignore it or even impugn scripture, it, it wrecks your bones, spiritually speaking. It gives you soul rot. Look at Malachi you don't have to turn there, but look at Malachi 2, 7 and 9. This is one of my favorite passages. And it says, for the lips of a priest, and he's talking about Aaron in the Old Testament, but now we are, in the New Testament, we are priesthood of believers. So we can apply some of this to us. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth, men should seek instruction. So if somebody comes up to you and asks you about things of God, you should be able to teach. Because you're a priest. Because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, but you have turned from the way and caused many to stumble, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. So he's saying a person who's to be a messenger of God, people come to them to learn truth, but if you don't give truth and you cause people to stumble with it, I'm going to humiliate you. Humiliation is the destruction. You can look at it like this and when Jesus was getting ready to die, in John 17, he said, I want you to be where I am. I prepared a place for you, and I'm going to bring you to that place. In John 14, he said, so really in the heart of Christ, he wants us to be with him in his heaven. So why are we here on earth then? If Jesus really wants us there, what are we doing here? We have a purpose. To testify to his greatness, to bear witness to him. But if all I do is bring shame to him, he distances himself by humiliating me. By having people despise me, not want to listen to me, because I'm really not a true example of him. So what are we to do now? Look at the rest of Peter. Peter says it like this, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this, that people are going to twist the scriptures, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. James says, go to the next slide. He says, these people, all four, they're kind of like waves of the sea. They're going to be tossed to and fro because they're not stable. But, and we as Christians are not to get caught up at. We are never to sacrifice clear reading of Scripture for politically correct agendas. We're not. We don't excuse the sins that Scripture condemns. We should never downgrade the majesty of Christ to be nice to other faiths. That's the waves that want to pull you over. Our singular job in verse 17 says, take care. Or in the Greek it means, keep watch over yourself, over your heart. Keep watch. And we do this by growing. That's what it says in verse 18. Grow in the grace of knowledge. Keep learning. Keep understanding Him. Keep living in His grace. The more you know, the more you love Him, the stronger you become. I want to end with this last question, and I'll give you an illustration. Here's the final question in this whole Bible series. And it comes from the lips of Christ. And I think this question sums up our whole Bible series in one little question. Here's what it says out of Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He's saying there is a, there's something wrong. He's Lord, but I don't do a word he says. Isn't Lord mean master? The first year of my marriage, I worked at a Toyota dealership in Cleveland, Ohio, and they had a service department, and that's where I changed tires, and emptied oil cans, and all that kind of stuff. One day, a $70,000 car came into the service center. It wasn't running anymore, and a tow truck came in, and there was rumors going around all the mechanics that the car that was being brought in, the $70,000 Supra, Toyota Supra at the time, it was a nice car, was owned by a Cleveland Browns player, but they couldn't reveal the name. The problem with the car 
was the engine seized up wouldn't run. And a mechanic that was looking at it said, the, the, you could hear the other mechanics talking at lunchtime, and he, they asked him, well, why did it seize up? He said, well, because he never put any oil in it. He didn't read the instruction manual. He didn't know that you needed oil for a car to run. And so these guys were laughing at him. So, so he's ruined a 70000 He's got to retool the whole engine, all the pistons. He's ruined a $70,000 car just because he didn't know that oil goes in a car. He didn't read the owner's manual as if they had all, they were real kind of snarky, laughing, mocking. But these same men were destroying something so much more great than the $70,000 car, their very own soul, because they didn't know the word of God and they were destroying themselves. They didn't know this owner's manual. They had broken families. They were addicted to all kinds of substances. They were just wicked dudes, but they were mocking a guy because he didn't put oil in a car while they themselves threw away their lives because they didn't know this book. This, is, this, this thing we call a human body is eternal. It's made in the image of God. It's priceless. It's meant to run on grace and to apply it. It's in here. Do you know that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. It's good to be back. Probably that's why I'm long-winded. I'm sorry. But we love you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great day. Go in peace. lack of contextual understanding. Instead of coming to learn what the author's original intent was, they come to God's word with their minds already made up. Instead of coming to this book by saying, what does it tell me to do? I know what I want it to tell me to do, so I find a passage that fits my thoughts. That's eisegesis. Last week, Jared explained to you how you take the Bible and you go to the original context, you go to the original village, you cross the river and bring it to your village. Very made it very, very simple. That is called, and if you go to seminary, that is called proper historical, literal, grammatical interpretation, or exegesis. Exegesis. Exegesis means to get meaning out of the text. Ex means out of the text. Eisegesis means putting meaning into the text. I put my own mind into this. I've already made it up. I'm the master of the text. And I don't really need to tell the Bible what to say because I already knows what it says, so I find what I want it to say. Let me give you two illustrations. Go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. I want you to use your, your deep reasoning for this. It's going to be a very difficult passage. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. What do you think that's talking about? Anybody have any idea? What's that talking about? Go ahead, Tom. What's that talking about? He's saying to fear the Lord and wisdom. Who would you say is the father and mother? And who would be the actual father in this book? Okay, so here's what he's saying. So he's, he's, he has just used what's called the historical, grammatical, literal approach. So he's saying, when it says, Hear, my son, your father's instructions, go right up to verse 1 of chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to understand in words of insight. So he said exactly what verse 1 said. This is probably King Solomon giving advice to his sons. He's a teacher, and he's giving insight and wisdom he had from God to other people. Seems pretty clear to me, but you're wrong. Notice verse 8 again. Hear, my son, Jehovah's instruction, and forsake not the watchtower's teaching. That's really what it means. Did you know that? 
the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah Witnesses one day came over and told me that. That's what that means. That's what they told me. I said, it looked pretty close. Like, this is talking about Solomon. Oh, no, 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 no. The mother, in this case, is the Watchtower Society. And they will watch over you. And if you learn the Scriptures from them, you will be safe. That's what they said that means. Is that what that means? No, they were putting their own meaning into it. That's called eisegesis. Let me show you another one. Very easy. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Now this is by, and people, they, they, they accuse me of bashing this guy, but you'll see why I, I don't necessarily agree with Rob Bell's teaching. If you notice in Revelation 21, verse 22, Revelation 20 is talking about the end, specifically heaven, and what the new Jerusalem is going to be like, our new heaven and new earth. And verse 22 says of Revelation 21, And I saw no temple in a city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So verse 25 says, in heaven, the nations will walk into God's city, and the gates will never be shut. That means they always have access. Now Rob Bell will take this a step further, and he said, you see how the gates are shut? That means God will never shut the gates on any religion or anybody. Everybody's in. See, God is open to everybody. That's what the book Love Wins means. He wins everybody. And this is proof because the gates are never shut. All he had to do is read one more verse. Keep reading. So they will, it says, and there will be no more night. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So who are the only ones that are going to walk through those doors? The people whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Who are those people? Those are the only people that have accepted Christ as their Savior. Wow. See, so eisegesis is I go into the Scriptures looking for what I'm looking for. Exegesis is saying, oh, in full context, heaven's gates will be open to those who are his and only his but they'll have complete access forever. Yes, exactly. Eisegesis usually happens with people who think they are really smart and can't learn anything from other people. And often these are the very same type of people who want to lead other people astray. They want to get a following for themselves. They often are prone to argue, like to question authority and criticize And they see the Bible more as an argumentative tool than a way to know and live with God. Cults use this method. Second method of twisting Scripture is very subtle, very obvious, and it's called mockery, mockers. These are the group of people that just don't believe that God can supernaturally speak anymore. They're, they're mockers. Internally, they chuckle at the notion that God really can talk to me through this. Okay. You've got to be kidding me. Come on. Really? There was a writer in the late 1900s uh, or 1800s. His name was H.L. Mencken. He was a famous atheist. And actually, he was, he was a guy that loved to mock Christians. And he wrote this. Religion was invented by man, just as agriculture and a wheel were invented by men, and there is absolutely nothing in it to justify the belief that its inventors had the aid of higher powers, whether on this earth or elsewhere. So what he's saying is this is an instrument of men, just like the wheel was invented by men. So is this. At least he's bold enough to admit it. But I'm convinced there are a large number of people, even in our own church, that really don't think this book has the power to change lives. They really don't believe that. They'll say, ah, oh, that's nice poetry, interesting historical references, but actual, these are actual words from God. No. You know what scholars describe this attitude as? They call it practical atheism. 
practical atheism. We claim we are Christians, but we act like we are the run-of-the-mill atheists, not believing God can actually enter and interrupt my daily life. Often a person like this sees the Bible as a self-help tool, but not the power of God encased in words. Just simply ask this, when's the last time you really picked this up and read it looking for insight? And a lot of people would say, Pastor, I never do. My hint, maybe you really don't believe it. You kind of are a practical atheist. You wouldn't say you mock the Bible, but you'd say, I find no use in it. I'm not a reader. I don't like to read it. Well, if, if, I, gave you a, a, uh, if I gave you a magic wand and you, you could just go like that and things would appear, I guarantee you'd use that. Well, I've never used a wand before, but all you got to do is pick it up and you, you'd use that. But a lot of people say, I'm not a good reader. I, I just don't like to read. Maybe you don't really believe this can do anything to you. The third thing, now we're going to get to areas where I'd say are less obvious, but just as twisting of Scripture as the other two. Because I would say most people aren't hardcore skeptics or practical atheists, but their error, their error with Scripture falls into the practice of it, how they live it. The third group are hypocrites. They live in hypocrisy, putting on a mask. They say they believe in one thing, but they live completely the other way. People put on a mask at church. They've learned to talk to talk, but they don't live it. They just don't. Deep in the hypocrite's heart is this belief that God really doesn't see what I'm doing because I can fool him. <laughs> I can fool him. I can go to church, but he, he doesn't. It's as if God is only has vision. Like he's, he's kind of, it's kind of like, you know how Superman can't see through iron? It's almost like God can only see in here. Then when I go out there, it's iron. The world's made of iron. He only can see me in, in, in here. We sit on a couch in our home, imagining God to be this old man with bad eyesight. Believing the, it's the worship music and hymns that wake him up. That's what wakes him up. He's normally sleeping on a rocker, but when, when the hymns play, then God wakes up and he can see me. But then when I go home, he, he can barely see that I do, and he pats me on the head and he goes, you guys are nice little girls and boys go on your way. As if That's really what hypocrisy tells my heart. He can't see what I do during the day. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm just telling you. When you read this book and it says things like, do everything without arguing and complaining, and then that's what we do majority of our life, we just say that doesn't really apply and God doesn't see that. Or, you know, a man, watch your eyes. Don't put vile things before it, but then we read that, we live on vileness. Ah, well, God doesn't notice that. That's hypocrisy. That's twisting the scriptures because I really don't use them. Then the fourth one I would say, before you put it up there, Declan, this fourth one, I got to tell you, Israel awakened me more to this because I lived on this most of my life. And this is rarely talked about in church. It's the issue of what I'm going to call sentimentalism. Sentimental, sentimentalism is a huge problem. Like it's a ma major problem, but we don't, we don't really realize it. In Israel, I saw it all over the place when people would kiss stones, cry when they saw the light go through a beautiful stained glass window, put incense up to a Greek Orthodox icon, and have statues on the front of your car as you go and drive into your house. It's sentimentalism. What is sentimentalism? The best, the best way to state it is the Christian who's on the hunt for feeling. That's really what it is. I'm on the hunt for an experience. The, the best definition of it, I heard on the movie uh, Miracle on 34th Street, 1994 version. This lawyer was arguing for the existence of Santa Claus. And to make his point, he's arguing before the judge. And he tells the judge, he says, what is more important, a lie that draws a smile or a truth that draws a tear? 
And obviously what he wanted to judge the vote for was the lie that draws a smile because you don't want to tell your little kids Santa Claus doesn't exist because it will crush their little heart. So what he's saying is there, is there is this lie that draws a smile and it's versing against a truth that could cause a tear. And sentimentalism lets the lie win over the truth because it would rather smile than cry. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Luke 11, 27 and 28. This is... I read this after I was in the city of Nazareth. Literally, I read this in my hotel room after I was in the city of Nazareth. In the city of Nazareth, they've got tons of churches because that's where, I mean, massive churches. They have one over the Holy Family's house where they believe Mary and Joseph and Jesus lived. They have this massive church over it. And it's gorgeous. I mean, it is. And then we went to the city of Jerusalem and we went down three places where this church was dedicated to Mary's sorrow while she watched her son die on the cross and they had at the very bottom this coffin that was carved in a wooden frame and it was painted to look like Mary and this lady before she was on our trip and we were on this trip and we were going from place to place really quick so you didn't have a lot of time to stop and every once in a while you see church groups crying and having worship service this lady at dinner one time said I just want a moment I want my moment I'm not getting it Well, when we went down to that basement where that coffin looked like Mary, she kneeled and she cried and she had her moment. She had her moment. And then I read this, Luke 11, 27 to 28. I read this that afternoon. Jesus was, you know, he was teaching. And verse 27 says, And as he said these things, A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Okay, stop right there. So Jesus is talking. A lady sees Jesus. And she basically says, Oh, your mother had to be an incredible woman to have a boy like you. Blessed is she. She's a great lady. And, and you've, you've heard, you know ladies like this in church. They, they are overwhelmed with emotion, which is great. And they want to encourage you. And they... My grandmother, when we'd go to church, we'd sometimes come out of church, she'd see a dove on the eve of the church roof, and she'd say, that's a, isn't it so, oh, like that. You know, and this lady's just want to be an encouragement. She's just saying, Jesus, your mom must be amazing. And look how Jesus responds. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus, you just threw cold water on this lady's emotion. How dare you? She had her moment. You're stealing it, Jesus. Why couldn't you say, oh, yes? Oh, yes. You know, that's kind of the religious response to things. You see, for for Jesus, it's about truth. But for most people, it's about feeling. I'm not against feeling. I really am not. I like, my, my, my wife wouldn't believe it, but I like to cry. I like when you have a song and it makes you cry. I love it. I love it. I really do. My wife doesn't believe it, but I love it. I'll tell you what, I also cry at the end of Lord of the Rings when they're bowing down to the hobbits. I love that part. And I, sometimes I cry. I don't mean to, but I do. Like, wow, what a, what a show. Is that a holy moment? What Jesus is saying, it's okay to have those times. But he said, you really want to be blessed? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now that is something we can stand on. And not always searching for the moment. The moments will come, but sometimes they're lies. A lot of times they're lies. And I know it because my aunts and uncles lived in it for 60 years. And it makes me furious because they would never listen to the Word of God. But boy, Mary could shake the, the sun. So we have the four ways people twist the Scriptures. Which way do you twist it? So then it goes, Jesus said, this twisting adds to destruction. So what does that mean? 
Well, what he means is destruction, as I'm going to call soul rot. The Greek word for destruction is apalia, which means a loss of being or wholeness. In other words, if you handle the scriptures right, it gives you wholeness to your life, to your body. But in a proportional way, if you ignore it or even impugn scripture, it, it wrecks your bones, spiritually speaking. It gives you soul rot. Look at Malachi you don't have to turn there, but look at Malachi 2, 7 and 9. This is one of my favorite passages. And it says, For the lips of a priest, and he's talking about Aaron in the Old Testament, but now we are, in the New Testament, we are priesthood of believers. So we can apply some of this stuff. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction. So if somebody comes up to you and asks you about things of God, you should be able to teach. Because you're a priest. Because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, but you have turned from the way and caused many to stumble, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. So he's saying a person who's to be a messenger of God, people come to them to learn truth, but if you don't give truth and you cause people to stumble with it, I'm going to humiliate you. Humiliation is the destruction. You can look at it like this and when Jesus was getting ready to die, in John 17, he said, I want you to be where I am. I prepared a place for you, and I'm going to bring you to that place. In John 14, he said, so really in the heart of Christ, he wants us to be with him in his heaven. So why are we here on earth then? If Jesus really wants us there, what are we doing here? We have a purpose, to testify to his greatness, to bear witness to him. But if all I do is bring shame to him, he distances himself by humiliating me. By having people despise me, not want to listen to me, because I'm really not a true example of him. So what are we to do now? Look at the rest of Peter. Peter says it like this, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this, that people are going to twist the Scriptures, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. James says, go to the next slide. He says, these people, all four, they're kind of like waves of the sea. They're going to be tossed to and fro because they're not stable. But, and we as Christians are not to get caught up at. We are never to sacrifice clear reading of Scripture for politically correct agendas. We're not. We don't excuse the sins that Scripture condemns. We should never downgrade the majesty of Christ to be nice to other faiths. That's the waves that want to pull you over. Our singular job in verse 17 says, take care. Or in the Greek it means, keep watch over yourself, over your heart. Keep watch. And we do this by growing. That's what it says in verse 18. Grow in the grace of knowledge. Keep learning. Keep understanding Him. Keep living in His grace. The more you know, the more you love Him, the stronger you become. I want to end with this last question, and I'll give you an illustration. Here's the final question in this whole Bible series. And it comes from the lips of Christ. And I think this question sums up our whole Bible series in one little question. Here's what it says out of Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He's saying there is a, there's something wrong. He's Lord, but I don't do a word he says. Doesn't Lord mean master? The first year of my marriage, I worked at a Toyota dealership in Cleveland, Ohio, and they had a service department, and that's where I changed tires, emptied oil cans, and all that kind of stuff. One day, a $70,000 car came into the service center. It wasn't running anymore, and a tow truck came in, and there was rumors going around all the mechanics that the car that was being brought in, the $70,000 Supra, Toyota Supra at the time, it was a nice car, was owned by a Cleveland Browns player, but they couldn't reveal the name. The problem with the car was the engine seized up, wouldn't run. 
And a mechanic that was looking at it said, uh, you could hear the other mechanics talking at lunchtime, and he, they asked him, well, why did it seize up? He said, well, because he never put any oil in it. He didn't read the instruction manual. He didn't know that you needed oil for a car to run. And so these guys were laughing at him. So, so he's ruined a 70000 He's got to retool the whole engine, all the pistons. He's ruined a $70,000 car just because he didn't know that oil goes in a car. He didn't read the owner's manual as if they, had all, they were real kind of snarky, laughing, mocking. But these same men were destroying something so much more great than the $70,000 car, their very own soul, because they didn't know the Word of God, and they were destroying themselves. They didn't know this owner's manual. They had broken families. They were addicted to all kinds of substances. They were just wicked dudes, but they were mocking a guy because he didn't put oil in a car while they themselves threw away their lives because they didn't know this book. This, is, this, this thing we call a human body is eternal. It's made in the image of God. It's priceless. It's meant to run on grace and to apply it. It's in here. Do you know that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. It's good to be back. Probably that's why I'm long-winded. I'm sorry. But we love you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great day. Go in peace.